Hello, my name is Corey Durbin, and you have found Running Eyes. In this podcast, we will take a deep dive into the relationships, strategies, and global mission of Alliance for Shared Health to change healthcare and change lives. Sometimes, we will travel on parallel paths with others who have dared to journey through the challenges of life in pursuit of a purpose bigger than self. As we travel these roads together, I believe you will find encouragement from either their connection to Ash or their resolve for the commitment and strength it takes to vigilantly pursue their passions. Welcome to Running Eyes. I'm here today with Trila Bumstead. Trila is the owner of Ohana Media Group. She and her family are friends of ours as well. And uh, we have, I think this is going to be a really exciting conversation today. I'm looking forward to to hearing what Trila has to share about her lifelong experiences in the radio industry and the financial industry and talking about raising strong girls and and turning them into strong women and, and the connection that and, and all the effort it takes to do that. So it's it's going to be an interesting ride we go on today. Trila, how are you doing? I'm great. Corey, thank you, and also your family for hosting us. Um, mostly we know each other through our daughter's friendships, and it's been a great uh, consequence of the COVID you know, right. sequester that uh, we, I've been, you know, reflecting back on this past year and just all the positive things that have happened to us and getting to know you, your wife, your girls has, has been a real bright spot for us. So I'm doing great. Yeah. Awesome. The, the basketball thing has been, uh, is an interesting segue. We'll start there. I think that's a, that's a great spot to start. And, you know, our girls train at, with a very accomplished basketball uh, coach and a woman who was a uh, high school All-American, played in the WNBA, uh, played overseas as well. And uh, it's, it's not easy for these girls because it, it can get pretty intense, can it? I think so. I think that uh, basketball is um, just a, a way to train them on how hard and how brutal and how unfair <laughs> life can potentially be. And that every day is a new day and you just have to go out every time and just do your very best. And I told Ava the other day, I said, you know, Ava, I said, everything in life is fairly imperfect. I said, you know, basketball is just being, having one or two less mistakes than your, than the the opposing team. Mm -hmm. And she was like, oh, I go, this isn't about perfection because she's so worried about, I can't have a turnover and oh my gosh, that was an air ball. And I said, you just have to have one or two less than those than the next person. But don't expect you're going to go through life without making a mistake or falling down. And I've often said to my girls, I go, I only have to teach you one thing really in life and that's recovery skills. That's all they need. And so every time they're going to their training, they're just recovering <laughs> as we saw them last night as they drug in pretty late and yeah. were pretty tired. Well, and I think there's so much to be gained from playing sports and from actually training to, to do your best to excel. Uh, I played collegiate sports. Well, I, I say I played. I was on the team. Uh, really didn't play that very much, but I had a goal, and I knew how hard it would be how I learned how much effort it was going to take to even for my ability level to to reach any kind of success and I think one of the things that is really uh, impactful for our girls and for kids in general is, is what they learn from sport and how much effort it takes to to accomplish and you have to put a lot in and that's true as in life too so 
great, great place to learn. Well, and I think what I'm trying to impart on my girls is that I think sports is just so important for girls. I mean, the, the amount of teamwork and camaraderie and the, the work ethic that you have to have to excel almost at any level, even at high school mm-hmm. for girls. Like when I was coming through high school, it was more like PE. You could just, hey, everyone just kind of participated. Not so much now. And really what I look forward to is having all of that just basic fundamental work that she's doing help develop her right. into, a, into a really strong young woman that can triage, make quick decisions, recover well and quickly from mistakes or failures and just keep moving forward. Basketball is a great training ground for that. And they love it. You know, they love to play it. They have so. a blast. And you talk about <laughs> strength. Time. And strength also, in my opinion, comes from confidence. And when my daughter, and my daughter is a shade over 5'4 with tall shoes on, you know, so she her basketball career is, options may be limited. Of course, I think she can accomplish anything she puts her mind to, so I'm not trying to limit her. But from an outside perspective, she doesn't have the height. But what I've seen her is start to grow in confidence and your daughter is, I've seen her play. She's very skilled. She has a tremendous amount of ability. And have you seen that with her, the confidence that comes from? Yeah, from in, in Ava's development, it's been more, you know, I, you're right. Now, Ava's 5'8", five, 5'9", five, um, grew fast. She's athletically, I would say, a more, a more gifted girl. Um, but I don't see a, a career past college for her either, one-tenth of 1%, go on to play pro. But for me, it's not about that at all. Mm-hmm. The amount of confidence and drive and just self-assurance that she's getting just through the process is invaluable. Because I'll tell you, in the land of TikTok and Instagram and all the cyberbullying and all the stuff, I think our girls really need to have an incredible amount of self-awareness. And I think that this is what basketball does for them. I keep seeing Ava's confidence grow and grow and grow. And, you know, she's had a lot of different coaches. I'll tell you, the coach that you mentioned that she's working with, she's no joke. Like, there's no messing around mm-hmm. with her. And and to be able to function in many different types of environments, I think, is going to serve them well as they get on in college and hopefully choose mates, right? I'm hoping right. that their confidence will take them to a place that the partners that they choose in life, whether it be at home or at work, that they're really understanding their value and put that forward and they'll attract the right people but for me if all she ever does is get that out of basketball it's good enough for me there there's so much there and i will probably get into a little bit more this concept and the idea behind helping our daughters and helping women our our girls turn into strong women and there's some mixed messages but I mean, you're you're a very strong woman. You're very you're a leader in the business world. You uh, started what in 1997. You were working for Deloitte and Touche. Maybe you started before then in the financial industry. But where do you say you kind of grew into, or where did the strength come from for you? You know, I think that my my parents really raised me with a tremendous amount of self worth. And again, when I was talking to Zoe, who's my older daughter, who's getting ready to go to college, I was like, Zoe, why not you? You know, I'm so proud of her. She just got admitted to Stanford. <laughs> wow. It's a difficult putt, right, right, isn't it? And I knew that there was a very good chance she would get a no and a rejection. And I was like, well, Zoe, why not you? So I think it started from early age on. And I played a lot of sports. I was very sporty spice. I have older brothers. And so <laughs> we were always, there was always a ball of some sort involved in my life. But I always was very uh, driven and had a lot of perseverance 
And I think that that just allowed me to just, just push forward over, around, under, through whatever obstacles. I was like, oh, well, that's just something I have to deal with and everyone has to deal with. And so I think through just my upbringing and a lot of challenges, honestly, in, in middle school and high school, you know, I wasn't always really treated well, but mm. I, I actually think that that's not unique <laughs> in the world. I think everyone thinks, oh, I had this uniquely awful teenage middle school and high school experience. I'm like, mm, it's almost every girl you talk to these days. So yeah. I think for me, my parents were foundationally very supportive, always encouraged me, even though it was a quite disciplined household. And then that carried on until adulthood for me. Well, teenage years are can be awkward in general. I think most of us, I, I admit to feeling awkward in my teenage years for sure. And you, a little bit, takes a while to grow into some of that confidence. And we've you've shared a little bit of um, the story of your mom with me. She sounds like she's a pretty feisty lady. Yeah. Came over from from Hawaii, right? Yeah. To the mainland. Yeah. Uh, would you share a little bit about that story? Absolutely. I mean, she's so inspirational in that you don't know you're unique until you get out in the world and start start to see. You only know your own story, and you think, well, everyone else else is doing it this way too. So, my mom is one of sixteen kids. She's number eight. Had basically was an arranged marriage at eighteen. Um, lived in that marriage for 10 years. Wait a years. second. An arranged yeah. marriage. Yeah, between the families. The two families got together. Did she know this man they knew before? Of. Okay. Yeah, they, the families were acquainted, but this was like, hey, you know, he was an officer in military, and my mom was actually extremely smart, mm -hmm. even though she, uh, you know, English was her second language, Hawaiian was her first language, but she graduated from high school, so she was kind of a gem, and they were like, well, this is a great combining of our two families. That probably wouldn't go over so well with our daughters today, would it? You if we... think? <laughs> I, can, I can barely get them to commit to, hey, can you just hang out with me this weekend? You know, arranging a date for them would just seem like foreign science somehow. And so, but she, she you know, was in that marriage for 10 years. And then after it collapsed, she got on a boat mm -hmm. and took the two youngest boys and landed in San Diego. And that's where she met my dad. And they have been married 50 plus years and happily married, but I'm the product of that marriage. But I look at my mom thinking, you know, she's, she's brown, right? She's not, she's, when you see her, she's not white. Mm -hmm. um, two young sons, uh, English is pretty broken and she's in her late 20s and she just shows up in San Diego with 40 bucks in her pocket. Wow, and and <laughs> which is remarkable, especially given I don't know if you know the year off the top of your head that was, but it must have been. So my parents got married in '65, I believe. I was born in '69. They're '67, maybe. So she, it must have been '63 or 1963 or '64. It's in the early different 60s. time, right? It, totally different time. It, it may as well be Mars, yeah. right? And <laughs> these guys are Martians, like. And she's Hawaiian. <laughs> she's Hawaiian. Which is another world that I think, it maybe that's the wrong term, but most mainlanders don't understand. I will all admit to that, and so that's a different culture. Absolutely. Food, language, hula, uh, you name it. I mean, it couldn't be farther away from, you know, what we do. And then we it's like coming over mainland. from China, right? Yeah. I mean, I mean it might as well be. It might as well be. I think my dad, though, appreciated her because in the Navy, he had traveled all over Asia and Southeast Asia, and that's mm. where he was mostly stationed. So I think he had, had really appreciated some of that, you know, culture, that difference. And so I don't think that he saw my mom as someone that was 
different per se. But I will tell you that they had to drive to Arizona to get married because it wasn't legal in <laughs> California for a mixed race marriage. Oh, wow. So that's a whole nother story. But happily ever after, right? Yeah. I mean, they, Marty and I, my husband, we have always talked about how the generation above us has formed us. His aunt, no, I'm talking about these are all plus 70 year olds, almost 80 year olds. So think about generationally. His aunt married a black man. Mm-hmm. His dad is married to a Japanese woman. My mom and dad are married. Uh, so come on, you know, in the 50s and 60s, we, we already, our family, a generation ahead of us, were the colors of the rainbow. Wow. And I think that that's kind of cool when Absolutely. I look back at it now. But I did often tell my mom, I was like, hey, mom, can you make something with a macaroni instead of spam? She's like, <laughs> what's a macaroni? <laughs> so it would have been nice to have a little bit of, you know, just more normal, more mainstream, but just didn't exist in our house. Well, you, you all and your family was certainly ahead of its time in that regard. And I want to believe that that the vast majority of the population actually doesn't see color as the primary thing that they should see. That we all actually genuinely do care about each other and mm-hmm. race and religion and these kind of things, these barriers that everybody tells us should be barriers. For most of us, they're, we just see people. We, right. you, when we go to basketball... And we actually get to watch, which is not very often anymore. But it's black families and white families and Hispanic families and Hawaiian families standing next to each other, cheering for their kids, giving each other high fives. And I think the world's like that a whole lot more than we're willing to admit. I think we're more like that than not. I definitely see it in my kids' generation and your girls and my girls and and their friends. I, I think that they really don't evaluate people based on just the physical of what they see. I think, you know, I, you know, there's been a lot of conversation about this. We don't totally have to go there, but if you ask me about racism, I don't think people get up and go, yeah, I'm a racist and I'm super happy to be that way and I'm just really stuck in my thing. I think more often than not, people just need to realize that we are all raised with biases. I have biases. And your biases are exacerbated by your experiences. Mm-hmm. So I think as we've raised our kids, I think those biases are just now completely rewritten. But I think my kids have biases still too. Like I have and to we all watch. Do. We yeah, all do. watch them carefully because we we've been able to provide things financially that my parents couldn't provide, so I'm very sensitive to like, hey, you know, we we have the ability to do this, but you can have friends from all socioeconomic sort of areas and that's what needs to happen. Yeah. Cuz we we just at some point got lucky along the way so you need to be very appreciative their world looks different at their age than yours did for you and so it shapes a little bit how we think and we as parents try to cultivate a little bit hopefully a little bit different uh broader view of the world and just our narrow understanding and that's challenging as a parent right so you you started with uh at least in the radio industry in, in 1997 as an audit manager for Deloitte and Touche, and then you ended up uh, working for New Northwest Broadcasters. Right, I was recruited away. 1998. 99, 1999. Early 99. So I'd worked on the IPO for Intercom, initial public offering, okay. at Deloitte, and then I got recruited away to become the CFO of a new, newly emerging company. After the Telecom Act, we were able to aggregate radio stations. We went on a big acquisition run, like 45 radio stations in eight cities and four states and, and I over what time frame was that um, how many so years so it took us about two years 18 months to do all those acquisitions wow that's, it was, that's fast it was rapid fire mm-hmm. I mean 
I was working 100-hour weeks constantly. And But I was 28, and I was happy to do it. I was so thrilled to have you know, my first job away from Deloitte to be a CFO position. I didn't want to be a controller, didn't want to be an analyst. I wanted to be a CFO because I wanted to have the ability to shape finance going forward using the accounting knowledge that I had. Accounting for me is like draw a line in the sand and look backward, but then that you take that information to predict what you want to do or make business decisions going forward, which is a more finance concept. And that's really where I wanted to spend my time is driving my company, moving initiatives forward, building strategy. You don't really strike me as a bean counter. Yeah, uh, I was not that you're not not that you wouldn't understand the numbers, but what I'm talking about is from a personality perspective. Right. Uh, you seem like per people person, mm-hmm. and uh, you you're you're take charge, but in a way that people I think are glad to be around you and work with you and for you. Yeah, I I definitely was not your standard. I was pretty atypical at Deloitte. Um, They put me in charge of recruiting after being there for a year, and I loved it because I got to recruit all the new classes coming up. And I always try to tell my girls, like, you know, the accounting was really just uh, just a fundamental skill. I was always good at math. Um, I enjoyed it, um, but Mm -hmm. it really wasn't like – it was a means to the end, not the end itself. Uh, So, yeah, no one would, you know, line me up in a room of a bunch of accountants and go, you know, which one – doesn't belong it's probably me <laughs> you know, and, and I'm okay with that you know you, you've talked a little bit uh at least in times where we've sat down together with my wife and your husband and the four of us sitting around and even our time talking a little bit about not necessarily feeling like you fit in all the time and you've even used the word unicorn uh and I think that we have a lot of people listening that I think that's an interesting part of your story, and there are many times in our in all of our lives where I think we don't feel like we fit in. And I'm curious when, when, and or if you've just always felt that way, or when you got into the CFO role with New Northwest, if that really started to become more and more apparent as you kind of worked your way through this mostly male-dominated, probably yeah, radio right. world. You know, I don't think I recognized it early on. I think I just got up every day and, you know, put two shoes on and brushed my teeth just like everyone else. You know, when you're looking outside of your eyes, you don't see what people see when they're looking at you. Like, I don't spend time talking to myself in the mirror. I guess that would be good if I kind of could figure out what my weird facial expressions are, what weird tics I might have. But um, I just felt like everyone else. And it's only probably been in the last five or ten years when I've started to serve on certain boards in my industry And really, the people around me are like, oh my gosh, this is a voice we have to hear. This is someone that we have to include because she's so unique. So I'm really feeding off of that. I actually don't feel that way, but I think that I'm perceived to represent a a group maybe of people that are maybe underrepresented and need someone to, you know, role model, if you will. And so that has just happened to me probably in the last five or ten years. And that group... You, maybe you said it and I didn't follow, but is specifically women, right? Specifically women, women of color, mm-hmm. you know, just um, even though I'm more, I'm probably in the brown hue. I mean, I'm definitely not African-American. I'm mm-hmm. not black, but um, I I would identify with like, you know, Native Americans, maybe Hispanics, um, Asian, you know, the Hawaiians are Polynesian and they would consider themselves brown. Mm-hmm. Like they do, they would consider themselves non-white for sure. Um, 
But it was people around me that were basically saying, oh my goodness, we need to have this voice. And now I'm actually wearing that responsibility more seriously. Because before I was just like, hey, I'm in charge of me, you're in charge of you, I do me, you do you, everyone's going to be good, you know. That's kind of my take. I, I have a lot of self-responsibility. I take, I take on that for myself. It's an important feature of who I am. Um, but now I'm looking, as I'm entering my mid-50s, I'm like, wow, okay, I have to really accept the fact that I represent an underrepresented group and I have to be very responsible with that voice mm -hmm. and, and how I behave and what do I do with that. So that's probably where that comes from. That's, I find that, uh, that leads me to an interesting thought, in my mind anyway, that, so you spent about 13 years with New Northwest and... I'm curious, as this in the CFO role, did you? How many times did you walk into a room and somebody's like, "Wait, you're the CFO?" I mean, it's well, after they asked me to take their coat and you know get them a cup of coffee, and then I, you know, it's sort of you know that interesting you know dynamic of what do you do when somebody doesn't isn't really aware of who you are. And, and how do you let them off the hook nicely? Um, I've ha I have a couple of dear friends to this day. One ran Charter Communications. He mistook me for, it was a cocktail hour deal, and he was like, hey, here's my jacket. Could you go get me a gin and tonic? You're the waitress? Oh, was, yeah. yeah, I was the okay. hostess, right? I was super happy to do that, and I actually had just been promoted to CEO. So oh. my t in my 13-year tenure, I was the CFO. Then I was the COO, Chief Operating Officer, and then I became the CEO for three years. So did you get him his drink? I did. Oh, that's awesome. I did. I and his name Not because you owed it to him, but I... Frank and I are still friends to this day. He was definitely mortified, but I treated it with grace. I'm, again, it goes back to bias, right? Mm -hmm. Not his fault. He's, he's never seen... I mean, I was... Let's see, how old was I when I... I was 37, maybe, when I became the CEO. Mm -hmm. And I look young, I think just in general. Yeah. So I don't think I even looked my age. Sometimes I don't talk or act my age. You know, <laughs> I like to have fun. You know, I you know like to yuck it up. But um, he was, you know, middle-aged. He was probably 15 years older than I am. White guy. Had a serious, you know, position at Charter Communications. Love him to death. And he came to me and he apologized to me. And I said, Frank, you didn't offend me. I go, I totally get it. Like, I get it. And he's like, I learned a really important lesson. But, you know, think back to this time. He's not a, he's not seeing anyone that looks and walks and talks like me. Mm -hmm. There's like, I am the CEO of this company, particularly in a very male-dominated, mm -hmm. traditional media-like radio. It just doesn't exist. We're not talking tech. We're not talking where, you know, these millennials are coming up and they're running companies that they started and, you know, Bumble and Tinder and all these apps that they're doing. I'm like, I'm in a kind of a brick-and-mortar, you know, business. So not his fault. Not, I would never say he was a racist or, or, you know, he was a misogynist, but he just had a bias based on his experience. Right. And I'm like, okay, we just have to turn that a little bit. And we did. We were fast friends. Him and his wife I still see and keep in contact with. And, and bias doesn't have to mean racist, of no. course. And I've had the conversations with, with my daughter saying, you know, sometimes the way you respond is everything. And sometimes you have to respond, even though on the inside you're like, you could you could run through a wall, you're so mad. And you may have been mad, maybe you were offended, you didn't necessarily say that. It's What happened is a little bit offensive, and you responded in a way that actually probably let left his guard down and opened the door further for you. 
Is that, yeah. is that fair? A- absolutely fair. Because you cannot create change unless you create trust and relationships. Like people just hollering at each other from opposite sides of the room. I just don't think that's going to work. I think that um, embedding yourself with people that don't necessarily think the way you think or believe what you believe and actually have an, an honest conversation without people losing their minds, you know, and saying, okay, well, why do we agree or disagree on this and making yourself uncomfortable. I always feel growth. At least my growth has always come when I've been the most nervous and most uncomfortable about something. Mm. Cause then I can really get into it and say, okay, now what do we want to do? If I just surrounded myself, even at my company now, I do not surround myself with just yes people because that would be a disaster for our company. And so, yeah, you're right. And I wanted to let, you know, Frank off the hook in that I knew he wasn't trying to hurt my feelings and my feelings weren't hurt at all. I was like, I almost giggled. I'm like, okay, I get it. (laughs) (laughs) You know, I understand. And it's not just one time. I mean, this is, I can account for you so many times. And so I just live there and I'm comfortable with it. And I'm comfortable that that's other people's biases. But then when we get to know each other, we're going to fix that. Right. Mm -hmm. You know? If it was five years down the road and he was still telling me to go get him a drink, unless he said it real nice, I'd be like, hey, I'm not your waitress. <laughs> or I might say, yes, thank you, sir. Can I get you one more thing? You know, it just kind of, it comes through trust is really what it is and building those relationships. And sometimes biases take some time to break down. You know, you, we, we um, I mean, I admit I grew up watching my dad run a company that the women were in certain roles in that company and the men were in certain roles and. So when I got into the business world, I kind of, I, you know, 23 years old, starting in sales and probably had a little bit of a, of a bias and a thought, well, women do this and men do this. And I, I really tell you, I can, I think differently than that now. And we have a VP of operations, Leslie Hunzel, who's just absolutely amazing and really right. runs that side of the company. We wouldn't be anywhere without her. Right. And getting to sit down with you and knowing this is, I feel fortunate to have two daughters and I feel a sense of obligation. How do I encourage and stir up the gifts that are in them? Because they're talented, they're strong, and they don't know how much is inside of them. And I just feel like one of our jobs as parents, and certainly I can, we can learn a lot from, from people like you, Trila, that have been in the war, you're still in the trenches, and you're a mom and you're running the company and you've grown a company. And in 2009, you got this um, media financial manager's rainmaker award. I'd love to hear more about that. These things don't happen just by chance or by luck. Right. No, a lot of hard work goes into it. And I think that one of the fundamentals for me is that, you know, exposing our girls to, women or other, and it's men too. I mean, exposing them to people that can help broaden their horizons. Mm -hmm. I mean, you mentioned like my unique circumstance. You know, even my marriage to Marty is non-traditional. He stayed at home and raised the girls. So when people say to me all the time, you have wonderful girls, I'm like, they've got a great dad. Like he was the one in the swimming pool and doing the deal. Because I was off all over the country doing radio stuff and serving on boards. And like you said, the media financial managers, Rainmaker Award, I got that for just, you know, doing what I do when you, you're asked to, you know, serve and um, was awarded, you know, 
a, a nice, you know, gift for that. But it was part of growing New Northwest or Yeah, what? and I was in my CFO role at that time and so they actually have a special vertical where we do seminars and train the next generation of financial people. And really how this comes back to our kids is what I feel responsible for now. I'm part of the diversity, equity and inclusion subcommittee at the National Association of Broadcasters. And a lot of conversations that I'm having now is I'm like, look, it's not just enough to highlight all the women and maybe people of color that made it. Luckily, somehow, you know, all the moons lined up and it, it, there has to be a better mechanism than that. So now I feel like our girls need to have more opportunities, more exposure. They need to be qualified to do these jobs. And so we need to highly encourage them, even when they don't look like they belong in that room like with the accountants or the engineers or the mathematicians, even though they might look like the unicorn, just press forward. Get through all of that, you know, um, I, I don't know, that, that skin that doesn't really matter. Just you do you. And as long as you do you, you'll be successful. But I'm really focused on making sure that my girls know that they can do anything they want. Mm -hmm. You know, they could be an astronaut. They could be, uh, you know, teaching at some elite college. You know, there's just should be no barriers. The only barrier should be based on your abilities and your work ethic. Mm -hmm. And that's really how I run right. the company, too. So 2010 and 16 uh, voted one of Radio Inc.'s most influential women. Are you still the unicorn in the room? No, there's there's a handful of us, but it, it feels like we just share the baton. It's kind of the same women, you know, that are running companies. Carolyn Beasley comes to mind, Ginny Morris. There, there are definitely some women out there that are skilled in radio and TV that are, that are doing a great job. It's just we need more. We need more. I'd like to never make the list again because I'd like for there to be so many women to choose from that we just, we just, uh, Hey, you may not be able to be repeated for another 15 or 20 years. That would be great for me. So, um, but it is the industry's way of highlighting women and, and showcasing what they've been able to do and sharing their stories. Again, like we were talking about our kids, hopefully maybe emulating something or showing them something that they've never seen before, that maybe it's a path that they could follow or pursue. They can see themselves in that role. Sure. And you alluded to, uh, and I'll probably mess up the re exactly what your uh, words were, but something along the lines of that women should be in the position if they have the ability or talent. And one of the things that, that has to get overcome is this idea that somebody doesn't belong in the room because of their skin color or because of their gender. And we also need to make sure that people are hired because of their skill and ability. And somebody like me, it was I didn't feel like I fit in the role that I was in when I was 23 or 28, but did I get in the room because I'm I was white? I you know, white male, maybe. Or maybe there's just a maybe path. So. No. I think I think, you know, to I guess I believe that the the path for say the white guy is pretty well designed, right? We kind of know, hey, this is sort of like a tried and true process that we repeat over and over and over, and we've been able to refine it over years. I think women's roles, even in the last, you know, 100 years from suffrage, I mean, look at what happened at World War II. We would have never won that war if women wouldn't have gone to the workforce. Them entering the workforce then changed the, basically, the color of the United States and, you know, how we handled women and women in workforce. So we're just still evolving. Mm -hmm. And so I really feel like at this point we just have to show our girls that um, 
you know, you have to be skilled and trained and you have to work hard. You might have to be willing to have children at a later age or differently. I didn't have my children until I was in my mid-30s. I had to get all this done before I had kids. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that's controversial to people. Conscious choice that I made. I still have two beautiful daughters. But Marty and I met when we were 20 and 23. It wasn't like I, I could have just had children. But that would have honestly changed my tra trajectory. Sure. And it was a conscious choice. I was like, I can build a family after I've done these other things that I want to do. Um, but I, I think that it really is rooted in making sure. I'm, I'm a little concerned because states right now are passing laws where they're like, you have to have one female and one minority on your public board. And I'm like, isn't this going to be a disaster if they can't fill those positions with qualified people? I'm not saying because you're minority and you're female, you can't be qualified. I'm saying you can be. But roll back 10 years. You know, you don't. You don't just get qualified to be on a board like that. Like I've served 13 years at the OAB. I'm in my sixth year at the NAB. There's there's a experience base that you draw from. Mm -hmm. So I'm really wanting to make sure I'm like, okay, we're gonna roll back. Our, all of our four girls are in high school right now, and I just want to make sure that they get all the exposure that they can get. If they want to go into law and engineering, I'm like, go do that job. Go get it, girl. And then from that, hopefully, they'll find a path. You know, that will work for them. No doubt about it, and it, it's. We don't want people dismissed or diminished because of the color of the skin, their skin or their gender. And you want people hired because they're qualified or mm -hmm. help people get qualified that, that raise their hand and say, I want the, I want a chance to do that. That's, we want to put, we want to put all people in that chance and give everybody that opportunity. And there, it's a fine line between just hire somebody because of the color of their skin and meet a quota and how do we get people in that position that are qualified? Yeah, it's got to be effective. Or if you know that you're going to end up filling these positions with people that are inexperienced, at least have a mechanism to get them trained up sure. and a support system because everyone wants everyone to succeed. Like, I, I've never heard anyone go, yeah, I hope you get that, you know, board of directors job and I hope you fail miserably. I'm like, I, I don't hear people saying that. It just sort of happens because... The construct hasn't been built. So if we are going to have more diversity on boards, we have to make sure that those folks are talented and experienced or help them get the experience so they can be effective board members. So in, in um, 2011, I think, is when you founded Ohana Media Group. And you had been uh, on this journey for 13 years of with New Northwest Broadcasters. We were talking about support systems and uh, training and now you're like raising your hand, I'm going to buy radio stations, right? Was what kind of uh, apprehension existed in you and what made you feel like, I can do this, I can go for it? Talk about that if you don't mind. Well, I think that at the root of it was my accounting background because I think without that, I do not think I would have had not only the confidence to do it, but honestly the ability. It is really hard to run a company if you aren't you know, pretty well adept at financials. I mean, you knew the numbers. I the, knew the numbers. Yeah. And I could read the tea leaves. And I, I could take those numbers and I could build a story or a strategy. I could um, analyze risk, you know, going forward based on various decisions. Um, I did early on in my career uh, seek out. There's a program at the National Association of Broadcasters built like an executive MBA program called the Broadcast Leadership Training. Mm-hmm. Uh, founded by this wonderful woman, Diane Suter. She's awesome. And uh, it is around training females and minorities in this role. And there are white guys in the room, too. Um, there's about 13, between 13 and 17 participants every year. In the last 20 years, they've graduated over 300 people from this program in radio and TV. Mm. That helped 
fundamentally get me ready for ownership. And then, of course, my 13 years in the industry, you know, finishing up as CEO, I, I felt like I had done almost every job in the building and I felt comfortable that I could actually run a company on my own, uh, you know, doing doing it for myself instead of a How important account. is that? I mean, you know, go, you mentioned I felt like you had, you felt like you had done every job in the building, right? And there is some something really powerful that comes from knowing all the inner workings, not just the numbers, but what everybody's role is and the idea of working your way up a little bit mm-hmm. and not just, uh, there's some, we, you know, I don't want to raise entitled kids, you know. Yeah. Well, no, you still have to work hard. Nothing's given to you. How much of that, how much of where you are today do you attribute to I did every job. I knew every job. I knew every role. Well, I think I would consider myself somewhat of a player's coach because of that. And, you know, you've got two kinds of, of coaches. You've, you've got people that actually did the role, and then you've got people that were academics in the role. And I would say I'm more of a player's coach. I think that also doing all of that and having all those years just built a lot of credibility. Uh, externally. So when people would see me, I'd sit down with my engineers. I calls yesterday, we're getting ready to do a big project in a couple months. And, you know, I know exactly what they're talking about. And they know I know what I'm talking about. And mm-hmm. then I can go in the production room and I can talk to them and I can talk to sales. So when I'm setting policy and I'm building a strategy, I think that that credibility and that sense of trust that they give me comes from the fact that I am very knowledgeable about their everyday challenges and that I'm doing my very best to create an environment where they can continue to be successful. Are all my decisions popular? Absolutely not. Sometimes you've just got to choose between two really difficult choices. But I've always been fair, consistent, and transparent, and I've really tried to communicate. But I think had I not grown up those 13 years doing all those jobs, gaining that credibility and that experience, I just think ownership is um, would be a lot more challenging. Well, you don't think Marty thinks all your decisions are right? And pop- they're not well, all popular with Marty. I think your what husband. he says to you and what he says to me are two different things. Uh, he says only positive stuff. He does. No, I got to tell you, without him, I've said it a lot. You got to choose a great partner in life um, because separating work from home, I haven't been able to do it effectively. Maybe other people do, but it's why where Ohana comes from. It's sort of a meshing of everything because your career can be your life, your life can be your career. All of those things. But Marty is a phenomenal human being. Ohana means? Family in Hawaiian. Most Lilo and Stitch, uh, you know, <laughs> watchers know it now. But uh, it is a tribute to my Hawaiian roots, and it, and, and it really is how I've lived my whole life. Yeah, you know? that's powerful stuff. And it's uh, like an everyday reminder, right, when you see that name on your building or on your card or in your email. And, and so in 2011, you founded the company. And you purchased stations in three, four, three cities yeah, over so the course of your time? In that first year, in a couple of transac- and transactions, we bought, um, or I bought the stations in Anchorage and Wasilla, Alaska, and then on the coast here in Oregon. And uh, that just happened to be the stations that were available. I did bid on more stations in Eastern Washington and Fairbanks. I wasn't able to get those, but you know, I just, I just keep looking for good fit to my company, adding to it. But, uh, you know, with COVID, everything is so crazy right now. But sure. So Wasilla. Wasilla. That's home of Sarah Palin, right? So yeah. Are you, are you, I think she's in Arizona though now. She I think in Arizona. She's, moved, she's, yeah. she's gone now. Yeah. 
Uh, so you make your way up to Alaska still. I mean, COVID is a little harder, I guess. We haven't been up in a year because there's been a lot of uh, restrictions on it. It just hasn't made sense because mm-hmm. I think they just opened it up for a COVID test, but you had a 14-day quarantine and it just didn't make sense. And I've got a really strong manager up there. So we have Zoom calls every week and you know we're just using technology, but I will get up there this summer and, yeah. and, and you know see how we're doing up there. But you know, any business right now, and we're a business to business, advertising, um, struggle. It's a struggle right now. But. The the radio industry is um, I, I guess has evolved significantly over the over the years with all the with the advent of obviously in the internet and streaming stuff and that kind of thing and uh, you have obviously staff significant amount of staff um, always there's business challenges on the expense side at healthcare I would assume is one. Uh, Our know, second biggest line item after payroll. That sounds familiar. <laughs> sounds, we know it well. And so, <clears throat> we're a very human intensive, um, you know, once you get your tower and your license, we're a very human intensive uh, uh, business. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So we uh, are the vendor consultant to Alliance for Shared Health with the health share world. What, what, how about, are, are there a lot of choices when you get your renewal these days? Uh, for health plan options, or what's what's that world like? You for mean you are all? there are there a lot of affordable choices? <laughs> I guess um, that would probably or be more appropriate. Can you even get a program bid? Like Alaska is really hard oh, to yeah, get bid out. Sure. Um, you know, without companies like yours providing these services, companies like mine really struggle. We, uh, you know, we don't. You know, look in the healthcare world, we are the tail wagging the dog. Like we can't set rates. We're not. We don't have fifty thousand employees like an Amazon or Microsoft. Mm. So we're really beholden to what the market will bring us. So when companies like yours are allowed to provide us options that we couldn't get on our own, it's extremely important, particularly for small business owners, because those are the costs that we have to keep down. We have to provide services to our employees. Like I said, it's the number one expense line, mm-hmm. barring none. Um, and you want your employees to have you know, the best you can offer them. So, But it is a struggle. Pretty hard to call your company Ohana Media Group, which again means family, and not take care of your your employees, your people. Right. Uh, I I I don't feel like anybody works for me. I feel like I work with everybody. Work with a lot of people, and you can't create that kind of culture if you can't offer find a way to offer some affordable benefits and vacation time. Yeah, four hundred one k's or additional com- compensation or flexible schedules. Like I am looking at everything all the time because. You know, with the introduction of Obamacare, it really changed the face for us, and it's been much harder now. Um, but yeah, I look at all of those things. I'm like, comp comes in a lot of forms, right? From flexible schedule, time off, maternity leave, paternity leave, like all the things that we do. And now with this last year, being able to work remotely and, and giving my employees, a, a, you know, just better opportunities to just be effective in their roles. Uh, you know, we, we're ever changing even as we speak how we conduct ourselves professionally. So Yeah, and it's one of those things you constantly have to weigh out, maneuver around, and uh, you know, um, that's one of the things a CEO of an organization does because you, you have to be able to look at the big picture and see the small picture enough to know what adjustments would be made and have, to have good people around you, right, to uh, exercise those changes that need to get made and so you you've kind of you've served some more than one role in the radio industry. Uh, you you were the chairwoman of the or the Oregon Association of Broadcasters, right? For two years, yes. Uh, was that a pretty an involved 
organization or you know some of these organizations you yeah you just kind of phone it in no that was pretty heavy lifting um so the oab is a trade group for our industry and basically an advocacy vehicle for the broadcasters in the state of oregon and the challenge for that organization when i showed up was uh, about 85 percent of the revenue was coming from the army national guard and then that budget got cut oh wow so within me serving on the board for a year or two and that revenue bas- basically evaporated, that basically mm. means no association. And the association, even though it's a 501 501c3, uh, yeah. C6 actually, oh, okay. but it's, it's got a sister ship of 501c3 that provides scholarships okay. in Oregon to, to students based on need. So they've kind of got this great mission, like we're here to advocate for radio and TV stations, but we also have this scholarship vehicle to promote, again, what I was telling you before, we got to qualify people so that they can actually grow into these jobs. But when we got there and the Army National Guard um, ended, and it ended for almost three years, we have it back now, but that was, I was the chairwoman, became the chairwoman during that time. So I really had to save the organization, navigate through really difficult times, rebuild the board, rebuild the management up to the executive director there. I mean, it was like running another business. Mm-hmm. Um, so I was heavily involved, <laughs> you know, nothing it, else to do, was, right? I, yeah. Nothing else to do. I was like, Oh man, you know, everyone before me, it was kind of a phone it in board, you know, participation. Cause it, it was kind of a well-oiled machine. But then when that happened, it was like, okay, all bets are all off, bets are off you know, you know, wipe off the table. Let's all get around it and figure out how we're going to save our organization. Mm-hmm. So, but I'm proud that we were able to do it. It was through a coalition of radio and TV folks that I'm still dear friends with today. Um, the organization is doing just fine, continuing to grow their revenues and serve the state um, broadcasters in uh, TV and radio. And so I'm really proud that we were able to like fix it right. <laughs> and move on. Right. So you spent some time in DC still. A lot of time in DC. Yeah. Doing some lobbying, and now I think it's fair to say you are at least viewed in some of the radio circles as a, as a champion of kind of women in broadcasting and women in, in radio in particular, not necessarily just broadcasting. Right. And, and how do you feel about that? Is that something you're gotten to the point where you embrace or was sort of a de facto thing or? Yeah. I mean, like at some point you get called to serve, right? If people feel like you've accomplish something, I think, with your career, and then you're asked to give back. So the two big things that I do in D.C., both wrapped around the National Association of Broadcasters, is I'm in my third two-year term, and then I'll roll off after the sixth year with the board and diversity and inclusion committee, the audit committee, the real estate committee, so really trying to serve at that level. For sure, lobbying, making sure that you know our industry is treated well at the national level and that we bring our issues to the attention of legislators because we're the only free medium that exists. Radio is. TV is a little bit different. It's must carry. It's on cable. You can still get local TV, but radio is the only free medium that exists, mm. mm-hmm. free to the public. So we want to protect that um, vehicle, you know, at, at all levels. Um, so I do my work with the at the board level, but I also was asked about ten years ago by Diane Suter. I mentioned her earlier about the broadcast leadership training program. I'm an associate dean for that program. And I go back probably two or three uh, weekends of the 10-month series and help teach. Um, So that's a way of giving back. Again, like I said, I'm really focused on trying to make sure that everyone coming up behind us, they're well-trained, they have access to resources. If they want to go into ownership, they want to be qualified for the C-suite or board suites, that they have areas where they can go and and get the training that they need to be effective. 
So those are the two main reasons that I go back to D.C. That's great. Uh, it, it is a part of our career path. I think eventually you, you, know, you build and then you grow organizations and then there comes a point where you say, oh, how do I, this isn't just about me, and which is what Ash is baton. all about, right? I yeah. mean, how, how do we be a part of something bigger than just ourselves? And one of those ways is, you know, help create strong women, right? And uh, have you had any female mentors in your career or do you feel like you've had to pave the path? I've, I've pretty, in my, specifically to me, I've, you know, paved my own road. Uh, but I've had some great male mentors. Mm-hmm. I mean, my previous CEO, Pete Benedetti, one of my best friends now to, the, to this day, we worked together seven years at, um, and at New Northwest Broadcasters. He groomed me to be the CEO, had mm-hmm. no issues with me taking over for him. He was very instrumental in my career. I appreciate him. We still talk to this day, kick around ideas. He owns stations with his wife in Denver, so they relocated to Denver. Um, but in my, if I think about it, at Deloitte, there were a couple of female partners, but there were so few and far between. Um, so it's really just kind of been me a little bit of the tip of the spear. But I guess I'm okay with it. You know, yeah. it, it, it is what it is. If I would have had a female mentor, that would have been great too. But I didn't feel like I needed it. Like I didn't, I, I never hear myself saying, oh, I didn't see anyone like me. I just never, it never dawned on me. And either you, either you make excuses and say, well, I don't have to get, or you figure out a way, right? And um, all of us have to, we get to a point where we have to make that decision. Like, I don't, we can choose to say, well, I'm governed by, or I'm ruled by the mistakes my parents made, or this right. thing that happened to me. And that's not to diminish the hard stuff and that we, we can at times really be victimized by some circumstances and it's like, how often do you get up? What do you, when do you, when do you kind of pick yourself up by bootstraps? And, and sometimes we need help. Yeah. And sometimes we just have to decide, let, let's go. Right. Let's go do this thing. And I think my internal fire and drive has always been the hottest thing going because I never really, I mean, if someone said I couldn't do something, I just feel like, well, I guess we'll see. Like, they're like, you're not special. I'm like, I'm not. Like, you know what I mean? I just, it never resonated with me that I couldn't or I shouldn't. I get up every morning and there's just like this drive inside mm-hmm. and no one can seem to squash it, you know, and yeah. I just, I just do until I can't do anymore. I get up every day trying to do my best and that I get a lot of satisfaction out of that, but I'm not really looking around to see how people are like responding to it. I'm like, Oh, cause it can be off putting yeah. very strong personality. So sometimes I have to pull back a little bit, you know, and kind of go, okay, I don't have to make all the decisions or run the show. You know, I try hard, but at the end of the day, I think that, uh, I don't know, I'm, I'm unique in that way. Because I never really felt like, oh, I need a mentor. Someone has to show me the way. I'm like, I don't know. I'm either going to do it or not. Let's just get a shovel and start digging, right? <laughs> See where it gets us. <laughs> I have a, uh, my daughter in her room. She has a, a, buttoned, a button that is a picture of me from my senior year of high school. And it was, it was, I remember this vividly. It was picture day after we had had our scrimmage for senior year of football and I did not start my senior year of high school. I, I went on and walked on in college, but I was very upset. I remember the day vividly because the coach, I had worked my tail off, and a lot of guys had said they voted me for me to be captain of the team. And I they probably knew that I was unlikely to start because of the, the junior in our, class, in our school who went amazing. on to play for Northwestern and took him to the Rose Bowl and whatnot. And I had such a chip on my shoulder because in the scrimmage, I 
he the coach had said we're going to let you play with the first team and all I just ran for my life because their second team offensive line wasn't as good as the first team that's why their second team playing against the first team defense and by the time it was picture day or time for pictures that day I had such a chip on my shoulder and I think to some degree to this day I still do and it's it's actually a healthy thing if you let it if you channel it the right way and I that feeling has never left me and in some ways I'm grateful I didn't have the success that I wanted to have in high school because you can get in college you can get satisfied really quickly I don't know if you feel that way but it sort of struck me as you said that that when somebody tells you no all of a sudden it's a motivator for you yeah I always look at that as um, well maybe not right now (laughs) I'm like, okay, I'll be back, <laughs> right? I never take a no as like, no, this cannot ever happen. It's just like, no, not right now. And I'm like, okay, well, if it could be a yes, what does the yes look like? So I never just walk away and go, oh, okay. You know, is it a timing issue? Is it the time of day? Is it like too, you know, I'm trying to figure out why it's a no and I want to eliminate those elements so I can get a yes. And I never am really unhappy necessarily you know like I just even if I don't get what I want I'm like oh can I try that differently yeah so you're right right. it's about channeling that drive but that drive you know that like I said that iron's really hot so sometimes you have to watch who you burn with it sometimes you have to in your age like you don't Marty always said he's like Charlie you don't have to win every fight (laughs) I'm like really (laughs) and now I I know what he means like just go, go. sometimes the elevator doesn't have to go to the 10th floor all the time. Cause mm. I used to be extremely rigid, like really kids will change that though. In a heartbeat, you know, you're getting ready to go to a board meeting. You got your beautiful silk blouse on. And then all of a sudden Ava is really like vomit all over it. And you're like, well, guess I'm not wearing this today. Yeah. Right. You have to be willing to change it up and, and, uh, you know, address the circumstances. So, but you're right. I think you're kind of born with that little thing or you're not, or you, you have different things that yeah. you know do that for you but right. mine I know is it's just an internal drive that I've had for a super long time well as we get close to wrapping up I would uh like to just hit back on this idea and this concept of raising strong girls strong daughters and you know it's the in my mind the culture screams at our kids in multiple ways multiple messages because there's this there's kind of this sex message and Mm -hmm. this you know anything goes culture and then there's this also um i'll call it you know feminine feminist kind of movement and i'm not saying you know I, i have views about what kind of messaging that i think is really hurting our our kids but my question really is around the mixed messages that maybe you agree with that, maybe you don't, and that's okay. I'd love to hear your thoughts on that. But what do we do if, in fact, you think that's the case? And how do we help raise strong daughters? I just think there's just so much input now. Like, they have so much data coming at them that you're right. The messages are all the way from you know, uber, uber conservative to uber, uber liberal mm-hmm. and a lot around sexuality. You know, women have always been sexualized. It is what it is. But I also think we have four beautiful girls mm-hmm. and I'm like, it's okay to be pretty. It's okay to Absolutely. be feminine. It's okay to then go into basketball and post up that girl and, you know, use your athletic ability to make sure you get that rebound. 
And that is a hard thing to develop equally in our girls. Beautiful and feminine doesn't mean not, not tough, tough, not and strong, strong, not confident. Not exactly. So I think just acknowledging that all those messages are coming in. They all have their phones. I'm not mon- monitoring my kids' feeds anymore. I used to when they had phones initially. But now I feel like, hey, you have to self-monitor. Mm-hmm. They're getting ready to go out in the big wide world all by themselves. They need to be able to make good decisions. So I'm exposing them to them like, hmm, how are you doing with this? I, I moved the fence out ever so slightly, month after month after month. Now Zoe, as you know, I mean, two days we're here with you guys. She's home alone. She went, you know, hiking in Snoqualmie and texted me when she got there, texted me when we got back in the car. You know, there's some checks and balances, but I'm like, yeah. of course you're going to go hiking. That's what you should do. When I was coming up, that was my, my parents would barely let me out of the house. Right. And then you launched to college and you're like, oh my gosh, no one to tell me where to go, what to do, what time to be there. Like I'm on my own. So I think for me, it's more about knowing that all those messages are out there. And yes, they're just all over the map. Really dial into who your kids are. Mm-hmm. Like, don't let them raise themselves. Get in there. Go, okay, so how do you feel about this? Perfect example, prom dresses. Have you seen what the girls are wearing or aren't wearing these days? Uh, yes. And trying yeah. to navigate, like, you don't necessarily want your daughter in a flowered gunny sack dress from 1950 and not no. fit in. But you also don't want her to look like she's getting ready to run out in the red light district right. in Amsterdam, right? Sure. So it's guiding. It's Knowing that those messages are there, there's nothing we can do about it, right? But guiding them to a good decision that works. Yeah, the, there's the the my body, my choice movement, and then there's some other movements that um, that are, can be can rub up against or butt up against those things. And I don't want I want our kids to feel empowered. And there's a there's such a fine line between empowered and using wisdom. And, mm-hmm. you know, it's, those are challenges as a parent. I got to ask you about one other thing before we go. And I, I don't know if I'll strike a big nerve here, but one of the things you've said to us is no one ever, somebody always asked me, what does your husband do? Oh, yeah. And, and I think it's a little bit of a business context here where you're, now you're, the, you're a CEO, you own a company, and somebody's got to say, well, what does Marty do? And Marty's awesome. You've you've said it while we've been on this, you know, on this podcast. And what is it about that that kind of sets you off? Well, it's it's more of a bias. And again, it was like the conversation I told you about the guy that asked me to take his coat and get the drink. It's, it's, I've never, I mean, I can't remember a time when I've been sort of interviewed or had a business situation context where people don't ask me what my husband does. And I always strike it as funny because when I'm with my other CEOs, or like I work for Pete and I work for Michael O'Shea, they never asked what their wives did. Mm. It is just weird. And I think it's a bias in that since I am unusual, you know, it's, I'm not the common answer. I don't, like you said, I don't look like the accountant. I get asked that question. And it doesn't offend me. I was just like, huh, so interesting. Yeah. Like, why, why are you asking? Like, do you think, you know, like what I'm more curious about is like, why are you asking me that question? Do you think that I couldn't do it without him or do I need him? Like, I'm wondering what's going through their head. And it could just be like, maybe they think I'm hot and want to ask me out. Are you married? No, I, those days are gone. Right. But you know what I'm saying? I find it an interesting question because they don't ask my male counterparts those questions. Yeah. And when you brought that up, it really uh, was a reminder to me. I, I don't necessarily feel like that's something I've done historically and it is a reminder to well okay when you get with 
women who are running businesses. And I just, I think it's so awesome. We've got so many, I'm surrounded by a whole lot of strong females, including my wife, very strong female. And, uh, that is a reminder. It's like, no, don't, this is the person you're dealing with. And say, you can learn a lot about person without, right. Without extending some bias that makes it sound like, well, you're here, but your husband must be doing something that's Helping you, yeah. supporting you to get here, because how could doesn't you, need to be how the could case. you do this on your own? And yeah. I, and but the truth is, I couldn't have done it without him. But I bet you would tell me that you couldn't have done it without Summer. Absolutely, right? And at some point, I want someone to ask me about my husband, and at some point, I want to ask you about your wife and everything. But I find it so unique that almost the tone of it is definitely mm. different when I get asked the question, because mm-hmm. it's more like, well, you must have a male counterpart, or you know, I'm like, well, what if she's female? Right? Like, I don't know. Like, do I need a partner at all? Like, the concept that in order for me to get here, I couldn't have done it without something special that, you know, my male counterparts didn't need or don't have or not even worth asking about. Of course, he has a stay-at-home wife. Like, okay, I I don't even know what to do with that. Right. You know? Hopefully, he's got a partner that's helping. Marty and I have always called it divisional labor. Mm -hmm. Like, I don't like to take out the garbage, (laughs) but I will clean a toilet. So will he. Yeah. Like we're getting ready for our dinner tonight. He's finishing the marinade chicken. Like we just, we pick up where each other leaves uh, off. Right. But I've always had the career job and I've always run the businesses and that's what I've always done. And it's a good division of labor because I'm really good at it. And he's really good at other stuff. And I, he goes yeah. and does all that other stuff. Right. That's what we call him MacGyver Marty. Can you go out and push <laughs> the garage? Yes. Like some, some mom on my car. Great. You know, he, the, whatever he does well, I'm like, you just go do a lot of that. I'll go do a lot of this and we're going to be uber successful. Mm. And that's kind of, but it's odd. Like even when he, he was going to stay at home with the girls, girls are born in 2003 and 2004. There weren't a lot of stay at home dads. He got accosted at the park one time. Cause you know how exhausting our kids are. Both of our kids are close one afternoon and he's like got the paper and he's like sitting on the, on the bench or whatever. And they're playing in the park right there and two women. So this is reverse, right? Two women go by in a stroller and they're like, well, we certainly hope you have children here. Cause they thought he was like some sort of pedophile. Oh boy. Right. So he's getting it on that end too. So I'm not saying it's just me. It can happen both ways. It can happen both ways. And like I said, it's all part of bias and everyone's got it. Like what is this 37 year old man doing here at the park? Yeah. Cause you don't belong here. And he's like, um, yeah, those are my two right over there. Like he was like, what? (laughs) Those are good days to getting to take your kids to the park. uh, I miss that. Um, I hope we can get to the point again, or maybe for the first time in our culture, where we where it's okay for us all to decide what's right. From a, I mean, if a man wants to stay home and his wife's working great, and vice versa, if it's it, there's nothing wrong with a woman saying, you know what, I want to raise my kids, I want to stay home, and it can work the exact opposite way. And there's nothing wrong with saying, I want to balance a career and run a company and have kids like you've done, I think you're really an inspiration to a whole lot of people. Oh, and I appreciate you. what you're doing. I think you're the, the, uh, the example you've led by is helping to demonstrate to, to girls, to women, that you can go for it. You can make something happen. Well, and I also have to give credit to the fact that I was born in the United States of America. Mm. Right? At the end of the day, we are the greatest country in the world. And while we make mistakes, we have our biases, just like human beings have, there's no way I think that I could have accomplished what I have accomplished here if I had been born in another country. 
-hmm. I just believe that wholeheartedly. I think that while we aren't perfect as a nation, I think we strive to do better and better and better. It's the intent. Like, you know, just because we don't execute perfectly and we don't always get that rebound, we always don't do it right. I have a lot of affinity for my country. Um, My brothers, my dad served in the military. I have a lot of respect for our flag and what we stand for. And I'm not saying we're perfect, but I do get up every day, um, you know, counting my blessings that I was actually born here. Yeah. So... And we probably all should do that more. And hopefully we can continue to learn and grow as people. And I know that we have a lot of members in our health share who are independent operators or self-employed. And I really believe hearing your story and what you've gone through to get to where you've gotten and some of the challenges you've had to overcome and how successful you've been will be an inspiration to many. So Thank you for being part of this with me today. I really appreciate it. And I appreciate you as well. And thank you and everything that you're doing with your company and you're with your girls. And um, I just adore you guys so much. And like I said, it's been one of the blessings of the COVID year, making these new relationships. So it was a great day today. Thanks I had so much me. fun. Thanks, Trila. I hope we can do it again. Yeah, we'll do a follow-up maybe after college, like three or four years and see how we really did. <laughs> exactly. That's when the report card comes out. <laughs> yeah, we'll, we'll see how we do. I, I'm, I'm confident that our daughters, all of them, will do very well and they'll, they'll figure it out. And a lot of it has to do with very, very strong moms in their lives. So thank Amen. you for, thank thank you for you. what you've done. Trila Bumstead is a strong woman, and she is not just a strong woman, but she's a strong leader, and she is one of those people who is sort of the epitome of a rising tide that that raises all boats, and the world needs strong leaders. It needs strong women leaders. It needs strong male leaders, and it needs all of us as people to encourage and stir up the gifts that are in each of us so that we can pursue our passions, that we can make a difference in the world around us, and and, and that starts with our own sphere of influence, and it is uh, wonderful to share and have Trila share her story. I am encouraged by that. I have uh, a strong, strong desire and a strong burning inside of me to raise strong, confident women, strong girls that grow into strong women. And so I was greatly encouraged by the conversation with Trila. I hope you were as well. Fortunate to know her and her family, and it is uh, a privilege to follow her in her career and, and kind of be a part of that from, from the spot that I am now. And These paths are hard and a lot of people see others at a point they've gotten to and say, wow, I wish I were where you are now. And sometimes you shake your head and say, yeah, I don't know if you'd want, knowing what I know now, if you'd really want to have gone down the the road that I went down. And I think that's true in in Trila's case. I mean, it it is, it, um, it took an immense amount of work and dedication and picking herself up off the ground when she got knocked down to get to where she's gotten and uh, overcoming obstacles. And even, I'd say, using what I call the powerful art of gentle persuasion, not just being sort of a bull in a china shop. There are times you have to be super strong and forceful as a leader and there are other times you have to to bite your lip or bite your tongue a little bit and figure out a different way to to get what you want and Trila has a unique ability to do to access and to um, attack uh, situations from multiple angles and and it, it takes that kind of wisdom that kind of charisma that kind of strength 
And uh, I think that Trila definitely embodies that. And a great representation for many women. I think she's going to have an impact and continue to have an impact in her sphere of influence and around this country for women, for minorities, and for anybody who just is looking for an encouragement to how to continue to pave the road that they're on, which for any of us, we're all on a journey and it's not easy. So keep up the fight. Thanks for joining me on Running Eyes. I look forward to seeing you and being with you again next time.